what a silly what a silly time. It is a silly time. What a silly time. How do you guys uh how do you guys feel about public transit? I love public transportation. I went to seminary in Pasadena, and so I could go into L.A. Um, for little and nothing. For 30 bucks a month, I had a railway pass and a bus pass, and I could go anywhere I wanted to, whenever I wanted to, and didn't have to drive. It's awesome. Yeah, that's the thing that's weird to me. I, I, you always associate L.A. with being a car town, but I got a buddy that's from L.A. and never had a driver's license until he moved here. Yeah. I would hate having to drive in L.A. Yeah, no, it seems terrifying. Yeah. I mean, that's literally, I, I guarantee you, Graham Yost wrote this screenplay, uh, or the seeds for this screenplay were planted stuck in L.A. Rush Hour. Oh, I, oh I, yeah. I still get the twitches thing about driving on the 420. It's awful. Oh, I bet. What a funny name for a highway. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of thought on public transit. I mean, I think it's a great thing. We just, Oklahoma's never really had the best system for it. Well, so it's, it's infrastructure. You cost, it costs taxpayer dollars in order to do that. You have to actually raise some taxpayer dollars and then spend them on things that people need. Well, yeah. that and automobile industries uh, pumped a whole lot of money into uh, making highways our way of getting around town. Yeah, and I, you know, I think Oklahoma's just been a bunch of suburbs that have slowly grown connected, which is much different than building around a hub of something like uh, New York or Chicago. Yeah, or... It's, it's definitely got the, the feel of a place that uh, slowly turned into a city as opposed yeah. to always having been one. But that being said, we've got infrastructure there. I mean, you know, we do this sort of like rail, like the little trolley car thing downtown, which I think is a waste. Oh, I mean, yeah, it was, I'm so mad about that. Building a light rail or um, adjuncting what we've already have. Um, it's a light rail that runs from basically Norman to the middle of the city, runs from Edmond to the middle of the city, runs from Mustang to the middle of the city, and maybe even Shawnee. I mean, you got to get uh, Midwest City up in there, too. Yeah, the, well, the Air Shawnee, Force Shawnee, 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 Midwest City. Yeah, down, okay. Yeah. Oh, Reno. Yeah. I'm, ba- I'm basically just building the cross, right? Hi, welcome to the Good Trash... Uh, Transit cast? The Good Trash uh, Public Administration cast, where we talk <laughs> about urban planning. Uh, <laughs> and solving the problems of our environmental crisis, because emissions would be reduced drastically by those vehicles running all the time and not enough individual vehicles. We're here to talk to you about maps for this week. Uh, we're going to be discussing all of the issues and flaws in the uh, plans. And of course, the best film about public transportation, Yondabon Speed. Yes, indeed. So here we are. Welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We talk about the films you'll never discuss in a film says course, and I think this week is no exception as we continue in our Keanu Reeves. The Mer- man they call Keanu. Indeed. Whoa. And so here we go doing that with the movie Speed. We're so excited. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And we are talking speed to you all. If you're not tuning in, if you're, rather if you are tuning in, but it's for the first time, if you have not tuned in in the past, you may not know that this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And that does mean that we're going to spoil the end of this movie. The tr- the bus blows up. Yeah, that's the thing that happens. Also, the train blows up, sort of. Lots of things blow up. There there's there are many explosions. In fact, I would go ahead and say, since we are deep, well, into a Keanu Reeves marathon, I would just go ahead and assume that there's going to be spoilers for every Keanu Reeves movie potentially. Perhaps Correct. we're going to be talking about the arc of the man's career. So um, that is your warning, but we'll have a synopsis and thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be spoiler light. We'll play a little bit of a game in which we expand the syllabus, which may be spoiler light. And then it's spoiler heavy time once we get down to analysis. So you've been warned. That's right. You have been warned. So, um, hey, um, I warned him you should do a synopsis, I guess. I will. I'm prepa- <laughs> all right. I, 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 I'm girded for this. I'm this prepared. It's all about Yandabot speed. I'm prepared and ardent, ready to celebrate the mitzvah of the first synopsis. All right. Just a fair warning. I, I borrowed half of this from INDB where it was a pretty good setup, and then I rounded it out because it only covered about the first third of the film. Uh, in a downtown high-rise building in L.A., a psychopathic bomber and extortionist, our returning Dennis Hopper, rigs an elevator full of people to plummet into the basement if his $3 million demand is not met. 
And it is the real Dennis Hopper. He's not playing a character. He's just finally gone off the edge. Um, SWAT officers Jack Traven and Harry Temple, played by Keanu Reeves and Jeff Daniels, foil the bomber's plan and rescue the hostages. After a quick standoff that sees Harry wounded, the bomber runs away before blowing himself up, it appears, until he calls Traven up and tells him that he's got a lot in store for him. First, he blows up a city bus. Then, he informs Traven that a second bus has a bomb attached to it. Once that bus hits 50 miles per hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it will explode. The bomber also warns Jack that if any attempt at rescue is made, the bomb will also explode. He's got redundancies. Jack races down the freeway and manages to board the bus. When an accident injures the driver, young bus passenger Annie, played by Sandra Bullock, is forced to take over behind the wheel and keep the bus running at 50 in order to stay alive. Not a problem. Her license is suspended for speeding. Traven must work remote with desk-bound Harry to figure out how to disarm the situation while tracking the bomber. Harry and his team discover that the bomber is a retired bomb squad detective named Howard Payne. My thumb! Harry and a SWAT crew attempt to take down the bomber's base of operations, but he proves again to be one step ahead, blowing the home up and killing Harry in the process. Rip. Our pet's heads are falling off. Traven finally realizes that Payne has been monitoring them with a camera. Traven takes advantage of this and works with the media to broadcast a fake signal. Fake news. The one time the media ever solved anything by being inaccurate giving them time to get the passengers off the bus. After Payne realizes what has happened, he kidnaps Annie and holds her hostage to finally get his money. It is that kind of movie. Traven confronts Payne and chases him onto an empty subway train. Following a train-top tussle, Traven kills Payne and is able to rescue Annie. But I'm taller. Bringing this nail-biter to an end. Well, that's what happens in the film Speed. So there you go, dear listener. In case you did not know, you've been living under a rock and have missed 1994's uh, explosion extravaganza. Yeah, like me. And me. And that, we've never seen it. That is the Correct. movie Speed. So uh, there you go. What are your initial reactions? Arthur, I believe this is your first time watching Speed. Ever. As I just said, yes, it was. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, I was, just, I, was, I was reiterating what you just said. I was listening. Uh, sure, buddy. <laughs> so, and Arthur, what do you think of Speed? Man, this movie is a blast. Uh, it is a good time. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I was very anxious uh, in, in much the way this movie wants you to be anxious uh because it's doing that die hard thing where every 10 minutes uh the ante gets upped uh, but it does it in the most ridiculous ways possible and contrived and it is developing all of these rules that it operates in and it is a blast uh it is a lot of fun every time something you know goes to you know the crane breaks after they've attached it to the elevator it's like well of course it is why wouldn't it or you know once uh the, the man on the bus pulls a gun, thinking they're after him. Don't take your firearms onto the bus. And then shoots the bus driver. I'm like, well, of course he did. Why wouldn't he? Uh, it, it raises the, the There's space. There's a gap in the freeway. Yeah. There's a hole in the gas tank. It's yeah. yeah, all of these absurdities just keep coming up, raising the stakes, making it bigger and better. Uh, and I think it navigates it incredibly well. I will say it feels like it goes to the well a few too many times by that third act when we kind of rehash it when they get on the subway and kind of start going through this cycle again but up until that third act man this movie is on fire and it is moving at a great pace i i think it's one of the great action movies of the 90s uh maybe all time i i like it a great deal i think keanu is very wonderful here is kind of a more 
uh, he's, he's kind of a young buck on the job, but he's very smart. He's very in tuned. And the film does a great job of setting that up without explaining it. The way he figures out situations, the way he solves these puzzles of how to help people, such as the elevator. That's a great sequence because it shows how sharp he is and how he's able to think on his feet while showing kind of the knowledge and uh, wisdom that Harry has as well to kind of puzzle things out in a different sort of manner, showing why they're such a good team. Uh, his with- name is Harry Hole. <laughs> Different movie, but I would watch Harry Hole in this situation. I mean, Harry Temple. Samesies. Yeah. Give me uh, Michael Fassbender's Harry Hole trying to stop uh, a bomb terrorist mm. uh, because it would be a hoot. And, and anyway, Yandabon really navigates this well. He had served kind of as a cinematographer on McTiernan's work earlier in his career. And so the studio brought him in after McTiernan turned it down. And, you know, kind of reading the notes, you know, everybody who had been friends with people working on this movie or, you know, around the kind of in that hemisphere were like, this is not going to work. No one's going to buy this. Everybody thought this movie was going to be a flop. Yeah, but they sold it so well and and it comes off so well. And and I really appreciate finally getting around to it. And, And Annie Sandra Bullock is just, you know, she's got her cute meter turned up to about 11 she is a hoot. She she's shows this natural comic gifting that we recognize, I think, quite a well in um, Demolition Man as well. Yeah. And so her coupled with uh, Keanu, they have a really good chemistry. They're a really good pairing. Uh, and it's fun to see them interact. Yeah, well, it will inevitably, when we, we finally get around to the Sandra Bullock marathon, uh, we'll revisit her and Keanu's chemistry in uh, the lake house, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, got to do that. And we'll 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 uh, wrap that up with the blind side, I think. <laughs> um, but uh, before all that, we're going to continue talking speed. And you know what? It, I, I, I've, like I said, there are a couple of faults I have with it. I, I think there's almost uh, no resonance to Harry's death. Uh, which kind of just feels like a throwaway moment uh, to help raise the stakes more, but it's never really felt, I don't think, uh, coupled with going to the the well a bit too much by the end. But other than that, uh, the shortcomings really don't weigh it down too much for me. I, I think this is just a really well-executed action movie that's a lot of fun. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask you now, Dalton, in the character Lane, played by Crispin Glover, do you like speed? Man, he, no, I'm not going to commit to that. Because he really likes speed. Yeah, he does. Um, I'm a big fan of this movie. Yeah, I, as Arthur mentioned, this is Jan de Bont's, uh not his directorial debut, I don't think. I think he had known Twisters after this. This might be, well, we'll look at his filmography later when I'm not talking. Uh, you can see his experience as a cinematographer from that first scene. There's a lot of really cool handheld shots in the stairwell as they're making their way up to the elevator. More handheld than you would expect to see in a 90s action film, which I was just really thrilled by. Um, there's some moments uh, in that opening elevator where uh, Yon Bont's camera angle leans a little bit low as some ladies are coming out of the elevator. It's a little gross. He should know better. I gotta tell you, I have like a deep-seated memory of that scene. and um, I can imagine why. And I gotta say, as an adult, I'm like, well, that wasn't nearly as much as I remembered. Yeah. My, my, my childhood memory was more graphic. Yeah, you get a little, get, get a little lacy underpants, a little side butt. Look, it's not. It was a lot more and more of a thong I, in I, my, in my brain I'm cannon. Sh- I'm so sure it no was. No underwear. I feel, at all. I feel very yeah. pervy. That, well, they were look, all in bikinis. Look, it's a very pervy shot and, uh, it's, it's it's not a great choice. You would think somebody that knows their way around camera work would know better. But uh, that said, I just want to get that one out of the way real quick. There are just so many fantastic shots in this film, and so many, uh, so much wonderful use of uh, geography, of 
time and place. Uh, as Arthur mentioned, this is an anxiety-producing movie by design, and I think uh, the camera work and the script work in tandem together to establish stakes and geography really well. Uh, as you're listening to this listener, uh, you have already seen Avengers Endgame. We have not. We're uh, a little bit ahead right now. Uh, but uh, I've been reading Sedan Talanka's really, really great Road to Endgame reviews, and uh, he just recently did a two-parter about Infinity War, and one of the things he kind of took it to task for was the fact that the stakes in that film, moment to moment, is the only time you understand the stakes. You don't have much of an emotional understanding of where, what the stakes are going to be, and then in the the geography of an action scene, you don't understand how close things are. He pointed out something that I had never realized uh, that that forest they're fighting in at the very end of Infinity War, that's supposed to be like right at the foothills of where Vision was uh, being held uh, to get his gym out. It just seems like it's in the middle of the woods, nowhere. And it's, he just kind of pointed out, these are things that, watching this several times, I have figured out that are so unclear when you first watch it. And that's a big problem with that film. Speed doesn't have that speed. And I just, again, that's the action movie of, of the cultural consciousness right now, so that's why we wanted to, to note it. But Speed manages to navigate uh, this this problem that a lot of our big action blockbusters today have, where you don't have a sense of moment-to-moment stakes or moment-to-moment time and place in an action scene. You always understand who is where and what they're doing and what the stakes are in speed. And regardless of how stupid and silly this film is, why does Dennis... Ho- it's just his thumb. His motivation is he lost his thumb being a bomb defusal expert. God, it's a thumb. Like, I was expecting something, like, way more traumatic, like a loved one died or, you know, he's got some debilitating brain thing because of, like, shrap. Nope, just a thumb. Just a thumb. Mm, more on that anomaly. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll talk about it. I, I hope you have something to say about it because I thought it was a very dumb motivation. But, again, all of these silly things that happen in the film equal something really impressive because the craft at work is so meticulous. Uh, and again, as Arthur mentioned, we're getting a very different Keanu here than we got in River's Edge. Um, it, again, this is something we're going to be talking about a lot this marathon. He is a better actor than he has ever gotten credit for. And sure, he's kind of at about the same volume he was in River's Edge, but he's a clean-cut guy. He's a smart guy. He is a deeply empathetic guy. Um, so different from the character he plays in River's Edge. And again, as we saw there, just a generous scene partner, letting uh, Hopper get to chew scenery as needed, letting Sandra Bullock kind of take the lead uh, in scenes that they have together, uh, letting the kind of secondary and tertiary characters like Alan Ruck, who's the only named actor I can think of on the bus, uh, the actor who plays Ortiz, all of these actors. Beth Grant. Oh, shit, yeah, Beth Grant. I forgot. Oh, my God. I was so happy when I saw her name in the credits. Uh, I always get her and Dale Dickey mixed up because, well, I have to remember, I have to do, like, mental math checking to remember who's who. Uh, But uh, Beth Grant, one of our great uh, character actresses uh, of all time, probably, uh, is so good in this film. She hugged me once. What? Okay, we can take a break from how I feel about speed. Tell me the story right now. She was at Dead Center for the movie Heartland. Uh, oh, she yeah. was there for the premiere, and I went and talked to her about how much I like what she did, and I talked a long time about her role in Jericho, which is one of the biggest roles that she ever had recurring in television. And uh, she just told me how sweet I was and gave me the biggest hug. That's awesome. And That's I, so cool. I love Beth Grant. Yeah, sometimes Beth- it is cool to meet your heroes. Yeah, sometimes it turns out people are good. Yeah, sometimes they suck, but this was not that case. I, I feel like character actors probably have an easier time not sucking than uh, big movie stars. but. That's neither here nor there. My point is Keanu, with Beth Grant, with the uh, Alan Ruck, with all of these characters in the bus, um, is always giving as a scene partner, even to characters that don't really have a name. Um, 
kudos to the casting department of Speed for making that bus look like a bus that would be in downtown Los Angeles. It is a very diverse uh, group. Uh, not everybody gets lines or character arcs, unfortunately, but, you know, it is still a movie in the 90s. Uh, that said, getting a bus that looks like an L.A. bus is pretty cool. Uh, and just, you know, it goes to show that as we get closer and further in cinema history, we get closer to hopefully something that looks more equitable uh, to the populace of the United States. But uh, just a cool thing to see in Speed. Um, and again, just watching Keanu operate uh, all these different volumes, these different characters is great. Him and Daniels are so fun together as buddy cops. Uh, that's honestly one of my biggest uh, quibbles with the film is how matter-of-fact and... Uh, quick jeff daniel's death is it's not really ever the fallout of that is never really dealt with and that's kind of one of my big hang-ups with the film other than the third act which i guess you could kind of herald that as the start of the third act is and as arthur mentioned once we got off the bus the movie's kind of done and uh, I, I checked out a little bit uh but uh, up until that i mean those first two acts are dynamite they are absolutely electric and uh, yeah i can see why this movie ended up making over 300 million dollars which is incredible um it does all kinds of horrible things like make you think it kills a baby kills beth grant this movie is insane uh it's great all right well thank you very much for that Dalton. you know i have a theory what's that i have i have an inverse samson theory with keanu reeves okay that the shorter his hair gets the more powerful he is uh, uh, counterpoint john wick uh, okay, well, John, okay, well, I mean, that is different, but I was going to go with, because his shortest hair w is when he's in the Matrix. He's oh, the most powerful. He's a superhero when he's bald. That's right. So, okay. Yeah, but yeah, there is a, there is the John Wick sort of exception there. But. You know, it's funny. I, I was reading that the uh, studio about lost their minds when he buzzed his hair off. Of course he did. And they wanted to put the uh, production on hold. Are you Until he grow back out. Yeah. Keanu's smarter than the studio. He knows that the character of Jack Traeger has a buzz cut because he's a cop. And it makes him more powerful. Yeah. And he separates himself from uh, Point Break. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the key there. Well, he's undercover in Point Break, right? Yeah. yeah. So, How many, I've, look, I've known quite a few cops. I have never known a cop with long hair unless they did undercover is not work. conducive to the environment of dealing with bombs and you know the kind yeah. of crazy stuff that well, you're just do. trying to cuff anybody they're going to grab a big handful of your head i was head. just about to say yeah. that get in a fist fight got to keep your hair short man not good to have no not no. a good look so I, I like that a lot i like all the performances um glenn Plummer for just 2 seconds driving the jaguar is great yeah um i just fantastic love him uh beth grant we've already mentioned and i adore her for forever and for always and so i love that performance um i do like jeff daniel's performance it's a little more barney rubble than will McAvoy. But I'm okay with that because it's, it's just a little more on the silly side for him. Uh, I think it makes sense for him to be a little yeah. silly, though. But, I mean, we're coming – what year is this? 94, 95. So, I mean, we'll I mean check. this is coming right out of the same time as Dumb and Dumber, so mm -hmm. it's a much different performance. That's yeah, true. Which is more in that Barney Rubble yeah. sort of uh, – I'm referring to his amazing breakout yeah. performance in the Flintstones, of course. June 10th, 1994, by the way. I'm just a scant week before my sister was born. That's well, there nice. you go. Um, so this movie is as old as your sister. Yeah, it is. Now – Think about that long and hard. Yep. How do you feel? I don't feel fine. Oh, crap. Okay. I'm coming to terms with my mortality. Anyway, um, but it's a lot of fun. Um, it's very well paced, as you guys have said. It is one thing after another. And uh, the way in which it's like, oh, and now we've got the, ah, oh, and it's, you know, the, all the time, setback after setback after setback. 
I, I like that. I do like the way it does ratchet up suspense, and I think we need to talk a bit more about suspense and good old Alfred Hitchcock because I believe this is a very Hitchcockian action film, mm. um, despite its frequent comparisons to Die Hard because of this sort of localized uh, location. And I mean, it is for the most part on the bus, but there's more to it than that. And so I don't think the Die Hard comparison is really quite fair. I don't think so either because the, the Die Hard model, whether you're talking about Die Hard, Die Hard or Die Hard ripoff, is about one person taking down a bunch of bad guys. This mm-hmm. is just a uh, cat, cat, cat v mouse. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a different kind of narrative, but I mean, it is as good in terms of pacing as Die Hard. So I think in that sense, uh, the uh, the comparison is apt. Also, just the male hero and the way in which that's performed, I think, is also on par. But yeah, it's a movie I like a lot. I've always liked a lot, and will continue to like a lot. And am happy to defend uh, to the death. Uh, I went ahead and double checked. By the way, this was Yon Debont's directorial debut. There you go. Um, I will not defend Billy Idol's um, song release for the album Speed. <laughs> It's bad. Um, I don't know if you guys listened through the credits. No, I didn't. But it is the most nonsensical bit of nonsense. I God, remember when every movie had a, a title track? Demolition Man. Yeah, <sighs> de- yeah, with Tesla. Uh, you got you guys know Demi, right? The comedy writer, uh, TV writer. Uh, I'm not going to uh, attempt his last name because I'll, I'll feel like an idiot. Uh, but uh, he he likes to do uh, made up songs for movies. Uh, he he did a uh, childish Gambino style rap for Solo in the character of Lando Calrissian. <laughs> oh my! He goodness. does them all the time. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's what every film needs. Well, yeah, that would be cool because at least it's funny and tongue in cheek. This is like this serious. Like I'm, it's not good. And it does not. I mean, the the poetry is like the pinnacle of Dadism. Like, mm. Marcel Duchamp would love this stuff probably. That sounded it's really smart. I don't a know what it mess. meant. Um, yeah, it's a mess. But anyway, so there are my thoughts on um, speed. I almost said demolition, man, because you got my brain going the wrong way. So um, there we go. Um, that's where we're heading now. I think now it's time to expand the syllabus. So you are teaching an academic setting, and for some reason the block right now is the movie Speed. With what would you pair it to further um, educe wisdom from your student body. I go to you first, Dalton. What say you? Well, obviously, the the block is about speed because this is a class about Keanu Reeves, clearly. Um, So I think we are now in peak Keanu. We are in pre-Matrix, but definitely the height of his his prowess as a leading man. We have exited the early phase of his career. He is officially an action hero in Hollywood's eyes. Uh, So you got to go to the film that kind of helps starts that, and you got to go to Point Break by Catherine Bigelow. Uh, I think that is a super, I would say, an essential pairing with speed. Because um, it is kind of really indicative of where his career starts to go, 91. Uh, 90? 91? Not important. Uh, but Point Break is kind of the start of where his career goes through speed and then on into The Matrix. Um, in fact, I would say that's the next thing you got to watch is The Matrix. you got to see the culmination of Keanu Reeves as an action star. We could have kept that in our back pocket for uh, when we discussed Mana Tai Chi, but I said, screw it, let's go ahead and trot it out now. you got to go ahead and put The Matrix and Speed and Point Break together to kind of see the start of Keanu as as an action hero who is believably accepted by audiences as completely unstoppable and emotionally um, pure and heroically pure. Uh, so I think that's really important. Next up, you got to go with Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz, probably the best cop movie of the aughts. Uh, I'm just now realizing that for some reason. Uh, but I think Hot Fuzz does the same thing with the character Nicholas Angel, uh, played by Simon Pegg, of being like the only good cop in the world uh, is basically how Nicholas Angel is portrayed. And he is going to make all of England uh, better police or if unless it kills him. Um, and I, I think what Edgar Wright is doing in that film, obviously aping a lot of the 90s action films that some of which starred Keanu Reeves. 
but just trying to paint a portrait of uh, a morally unimpeachable police officer, which uh, I think uh, we need in cinema. I think we have too many, especially in the post-9-11 era, uh, of things like uh, 24. We have far too many uh, fictional law enforcement officers who uh, show us uh, going off the chain is a good thing. And don't be wrong, those stories are fun and fine, but when they start to permeate the consciousness, it's not good for us as a, as a people. It's not good for... If we are going to continue to be a people that have law enforcement, we need to have fictional law enforcement heroes that are unimpeachably good and always follow the rules. And even when uh, Jack Traeger is... Uh, breaking the rules by stealing a Porsche, uh, it is only because it is... I believe it's a Jaguar. That's right, it was a Jaguar, you're right. Uh, it is only because it is of the utmost necessity, because that bus is about to blow up. And, you know, that guy's he makes sure the guy's got insurance first, right? Uh, again, I think those are all really important. Uh, finally, I think we need to look at the careers of the crew. We need to look at Graham Yost, uh, the writer of this, his fantastic series starring um, uh, Timothy Oliphant, Justified, uh, which is the kind of cop show I was just talking about. It is about a morally uh, gray police officer trying to navigate being a morally gray person and figuring out how to be a good guy. Uh, and I think Graham Yost uh, is just a really, really fun writer. And uh, seeing his kind of the culmination of his work, the clout he gets off of speed to lead a TV show on FX about a decade later, uh, I think is a really fun thing to see in his career. Uh, and then finally, you got to go to Jan de Bont, uh, go look at his work as a cinematographer. And I thought, what better than the most dangerous film ever made, Roar, uh, which I don't know if we've talked about on this show uh, I think before. Nick came on and talked about it. Uh, I think you talked about it when you went and saw it. When we yeah, get fired up. It's been quite a few years is my point. Uh, I won't belabor the point other than to say it's a movie about living with big cats. And all the big cats are real and right next to the actors. And lots of people almost died, including Yon de Bont, who literally got scalped by a lion for his art. Uh, so Yon de Bont, uh, every time you see a dangerous stunt in the movie Speed, remember that man would not ask anybody to do something he wouldn't do himself. <laughs> very good, very good. Okay, Arthur, so what do you want to talk about? Uh, I think there are a couple of things. Um, the the first thing you've already you brought him up, uh, Hitchcock. I, I think we talked suspense. I think I want to go with the the man who knew too much. Uh, specifically, I would go with the original uh, version, the British version, um, which features just uh, one of the great suspenseful moments in cinema, uh, which is set up nicely as uh, there's a, a musical cue, uh, which is pivotal to to the kind of climax of that film. But it's a real masterclass in building suspense and how that works. And I don't want to go too much into that because we'll talk about suspense later and how that uh, is built. Uh, but I think that's one to, to really go to and look at for that element if you really want to hammer that home. Uh, and, and the other thing is kind of hinted at here uh, in twofold. One, the script is just really tight, really impactful. And I, I was looking, and Joss Whedon actually came up to do a lot of the rewrites on the dialogue, and I understand that, that makes sense. most of the dialogue is actually Whedon's writing. Hmm. Um, so that, coupled with the overpresence of the media and how that's impacting the narrative, I want to go back to Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. Oh, great mm. pick. Um, mm -hmm. Just one, because Wilder's just one of the tightest screen rights I know, just the way he puts dialogue together and how rapid it comes. Uh, but also just that movie's exploration of the media. You know, uh, the the work, the original title was The Big the big Circus, I think. I can't remember the exact. Yeah, it's something, something to like that because it's based on a true story. Uh, yeah. The Big Carnival was the, the, big carnival. Yeah, the yeah. working title. Um, 
which is what it was released under before they changed it to Ace in the Hole later. Um, but the big carnival is really referring to that media circus, right? These mm-hmm. the media came out and how that really explored, uh, really, I think, foretold what the media would become and, and how it would interact with culture and how it would portray events. And I think that's something that's kind of played with here, not to great depth, uh, but I think it does have a part to play uh, within the narrative. And I think uh, Wilder does a great job of really fleshing that out and exploring those ideas and exploring those themes. And so I, I think those are two films that if I was studying this in a, a block, uh, in, in a, a you know, film course on, with speed on the syllabus, uh, I would uh, emphasize it and, and, and work it out a little bit with those two movies. Very good, very good. Thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I think I would want to talk about policing and uh, just the sort of role of police and the fantasies that we are having about police in the early 1990s leading up to the historical moment of Rodney King and then later on into the 20 uh, teens and aughts with uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, some of the responses there, Ferguson, etc. But um, I think first, though, we have to really um, tie into the fantasy itself. And so the two accompanying films would be Die Hard for the obvious reasons of John McClane being this sort of loose end cop that he's he's always commissioned. He's always sort of um, invested with authority, despite the fact he's half a continent away from his jurisdiction. And so that's auto- so Die Hard Three is the only movie where he's actually being a cop in New York, right? Uh, and then two other movies, he's literally taking his, or one other movie, he's taking his Policing International. So yeah, yeah, that's kind yeah. of his, his his shtick. So so there's that, and then I think Lethal Weapon. Um, looking at the mm, first Lethal yeah. Weapon movie and that 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 troubled relationship between uh, Riggs and Murtaugh, uh, the Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, who is getting way too old for this. And uh, that's what we would look at, I think, in terms of uh, cinema. Then I would recommend Yvonne Tasker's interestingly titled essay. Get ready for this, guys. It's a fun title. Hit it. Dumb Movies for Dumb People, colon, Masculinity, The Body, and The Voice in Contemporary Action Cinema. I know this article. It's a fun one. Yeah. And we'll talk more about it later when we get into analysis. But I think uh, accompanying that sort of uh, really trying to unpack that fantasy of the 90s, because I think that does explain some of the responses to these uh, in, in egregious acts of police violence that take place and the frustration um, that over-police communities sort of experience and uh, articulate uh, towards that is because this fantasy itself is being perpetuated by the media and, you know, police officers themselves are watching these movies and continue to sort of try to find ways to act out those same kinds of stories and fantasies. So that's the way I would go with it if I were teaching a block. So there you go, dear listener. Um, your syllabus just got much longer. I think now it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. Yes, indeed, dear listener, and that business is, as always, analysis. We've already uh, uttered the name of the great Alfred Hitchcock. So, yes. What's the difference between surprise and suspense, Arthur? Well, surprise just comes at you. You don't expect it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just the the thrill. Uh, you know, this is where a scare jump comes in, where uh, you're just watching something, and all of a sudden an explosion goes off, and you had no idea it was going to be there or happen, and it just catches you off guard and thrills you and, and surprises you. Whereas suspense, right, uh, and this really leans heavily into Hitchcock's great example of suspense, um, which is you're at a dinner table, and you see a bomb under the table, and the clock is ticking down, and as an audience, you know it's there. But your characters don't know it's there, but you know the characters don't know it's there. 
And so you're here watching this, and you're just getting closer to the edge of your seat as that clock is ticking down because you don't know how it's going to play out. And that's literally how the the dramatic thrust of speed starts, Correct, right? right. Yeah. yeah, there's literally a bomb under a bus. And <laughs> nobody on the bus knows it's there. Yeah, it's exactly that, that uh, kind of example brought to life. And I, I think, think you're absolutely right, Arthur, but I think there's something weirdly interesting about it because I think it plays with surprise as well. The opening sequence when Dennis Hopper is uh, rigging the bomb yeah. and he stabs the guy behind the ear, mm. uh, which is gross. Oh, it's so good. And then, it's a great uh, effect. Before we get on the bus, he blows up another bus. And so the, there are these two moments where he absolutely surprises us with, okay, now we're in the thick of it, and then lays on the suspense. And I think that formula is actually in some ways better. Yeah. I, I think it does add to that. I mean, and that's the whole thing is he's raising the ante. All of those ante-ups on the film, you know, the bus driver getting shot, the fuel tank uh, leaking, um, you know, everything else that kind of goes along with that. We know she's been kidnapped and, 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 and stuff like that. Uh, really, those are more in the, the line of thrills rather than that mm-hmm. kind of suspenseful uh, tradition that Hitchcock's talking about. Uh, but I think you're right that they work together to really – increase and ratchet up the the stakes of the game in, in this film. And I think what kind of elevates the film uh, kind of from just being a, a cool, suspenseful action movie kind of into the realm of great, you know, pinnacle of good trash is the fact that in between these moments where the stakes are raised, we get a lot of room to let the story and the characters breathe. Um, and just by virtue of the fact that they are on the bus for a lot of the movie, it's just they're, all they're doing is driving at 50 miles an hour. Uh, obviously, there are moments where that becomes more difficult, and you know there's a new complication about driving the bus, whether it's the bridge out we already mentioned, or rush hour, or uh, having to make a sharp turn, all of these different things. But in between those moments, we kind of get time to just see how people are reacting to being on the bus. Uh, Beth Grant obviously being a great example when uh, they find out that there might be a potential for escape. She's like, fuck this, I'm out of here, bye. Um, Or whether it's, you know, Ortiz trying to, uh, him and Alan Ruck, I I wish I I have to look up that actor's name. Uh, Don't remember Alan Ruck's character's name, though, so who cares. Uh, But those two characters kind of butting heads on the bus. Oh, Cameron from uh, Ferris Bueller's. Yeah, Alan Ruck. Yeah, Yeah. I can't think of the the character name. But yeah, those two characters butting heads and kind of jockeying for position and Ortiz trying to get that guy to calm down uh, because he knows that he's elevating the mood in the bus. Um, the guy that pulls the gun thinking that Keanu's there to arrest him. All of these these different moments that are not just complications, uh, as we've talked about the stakes being raised, they're character complications that kind of further uh, our understanding of the dynamics of the people on the bus. I think those are the moments that really kind of elevate the film uh, outside of just being a really fun thrill thrill fest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to your point, that's. I think when you have that combination of suspense and and thrills together is when you have this kind of movie like Dalton said working at its best I think a lot of horror uh, where I mean they're relying on pretty much the same stuff yeah suspense and thrills and if you just have those thrills those jump scares it feels cheap right I mean it's an easy response to to scare somebody real but just by flashing a horror Mm -hmm. image in the front of the camera real quick but if you can build the the jump scare with suspense to show like oh there is a ghost in the background mm-hmm. so you know it's there the character doesn't know it's there and then when the jump scare occurs it's much more impactful and i think that's exactly what's happening here in speed yeah you've talked a lot about that in, in recent weeks about horror films that fail at that right horror films that just give you unlikable characters and they get yeah. jump scared to death till the end of the movie yeah 
it's it's that in between stuff. It's yeah. it's the the lettuce and onion between the yeah. meat that really hold everything together. And it's really at the front of my mind because I this weekend I kind of went through and watched the uh, the Conjuring Extended Cinematic Universe, <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, I buddy. I watched Annabelle and Annabelle Creation, um, and and they're really two movies that are playing with the t- same tool set. You know, uh, neither one's doing anything outside. You, we talked about Paint by Numbers a couple of weeks ago and why that doesn't mean a bad thing. And, and these are two examples of the same coin where they're both using the same tools in, in building, trying to build dread and tone, atmosphere, you know, uh, these kind of secluded settings, uh, wherein Annabelle really relies mostly on the, trying to use those thrills mm-hmm. rather than building suspense. But Annabelle Creation is able to use both much more effectively. Yeah. And so I, I think that's really what comes together here. I, I think if you have this movie where it's just un- unexpected thrill after thrill after thrill. It just is kind of boring and cheap, uh, and, and we don't really get anything. But to be able to infuse the two is what makes it work as a action film. But I think it's also interesting how those tools, because it's the same thing with comedy, right? I mean, it's, it's the exact same. That's why yeah. I think Jordan Peele's so good as a horror director is because he's playing with the exact same tool set as he would as a comedy. And so I, I think it's interesting that, you know, narratively when you're, working with those two uh, pieces, it's, it's really where you, you get a more intriguing, interesting script and narrative playing out. Absolutely. Now I want to move on to another idea, the idea of perform masculinity Ooh, okay. uh, for this film. Because, for dumb movies for dumb people. Uh, yeah, and I think that this movie does something slightly different. Unlike what you might find in a Die Hard or Mel Gibson's body in A Lethal Weapon, that it is less of the ogling... Uh, body on display and performing masculinity in this sort of, again, um, no girls allowed kind of vacuum. Uh, Keanu does not seem to be performing the same kind of masculinity unless you include Sandra Bullock's character in which she operates as a foil, that uh, he becomes a man of action and she becomes a woman of emotional labor and care. That there's a, there's a one particular scene where um, perhaps he's lost under the uh, bowels of the machine when he's like on this you know rolly. Um, yeah, he's he's gone under this rolling dolly to try to and the bomb. oil yeah. change machine. That he's I love that. Oh, it's that's, so oh, nuts, so good. Um, but she's like, you know, is he okay? Where's he at? Tell him he's fine. Tell, you know, and, and there's this sort of continual um, maternal kind of bits of dialogue that she keeps screaming back instead of just like, you know, looking mm-hmm. forward and driving the, the bus down the road, the overgrown Pinto, as she calls it. Um, well, and then there's moments where she is kind of responsible for keeping everybody on the bus calm, right? Like mm-hmm. Ortiz is trying to backseat drive and she's like, hey, behind the yellow line. She becomes the bus driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, you're right that it, it kind of fulfills a lot of uh, emotional labor in that role. So uh, it, it seems to me that despite the fact that Keanu doesn't have quite the same kind of beefcake uh, screen presence that an Arnold Schwarzenegger or a, a Bruce Willis or a Mel Gibson might carry, um, that what what he does still remains um, uh, limited sort of emotional life, a limited sort of bit of conversation, and a man who does things through the course of his actions. And that when he is talking about what's going on inside his head, it's working out puzzles and problems, mm-hmm. not his feelings about losing his best friend Harry, not his, you know, I mean, the closest thing to a vulnerable moment is when he's talking about this great party that he was at the, the night before, and he said, well, it must not have been that great because I woke up alone. Yeah, it's you literally know? the only time we get a, a look at his interior life. Which is not very vulnerable no. at all. You know, and and so it seems to me that he's performing masculinity in a different kind of way, but just because he doesn't have the, again, uh, 
physical attributes. He, like, he's the yeah. bodybuilder looker. Well, yeah. a lot of people, again, were probably referenced. I know it came up last week, but there's all these articles about the 20th anniversary of the Matrix, and some of them have focused a lot on Keanu's body as like a svelte guy, as a, mm-hmm. a, a thinly built, not, you know, he's not an unathletic looking guy, but he has a svelte body. And that's kind of a big thing people have talked about in the Matrix is that paves the way for super heroics from non-beefcakes, basically. Uh, and, and I think just his stature as just a human who has a body has been kind of very interesting for the action genre. And I think you're right, Dustin, that you've kind of drawn that through line in a really interesting way. And so I, the, what the film does, interestingly, unlike those other two films in which Riggs and uh, McClane both suffer many, many wounds in their bodies over the course, there's like the slow deterioration of their just physical ability to maintain the fight. You don't have that. You don't have this sort of onset of um, continually worsening and worsening shoulder, leg, you know, rib wounds. Again, things that would be technically flesh wounds that are survivable that he has to sort of overcome. We don't have that same sort of thing tied into the narrative. Well, they were pierced for our transgressions. They, they are. They they are definitely in that sort of more Christ-like mode, right? But, um, yeah, that that's that's sort of the observation I have there. Uh, regarding that, and again, that's that's where the film's women come into play is that they are simply uh, used for emotional labor and uh, for foils to masculinity. And you're right; it robs the film of some potentially interesting moments, right? Right. Because the only time we get to see Keanu's like grief or rage is uh, when his buddy. Uh, the bus driver that he's always at the same coffee shop as dies. That's the one moment we get like a little hint of like him being upset about somebody dying. Because mm-hmm. uh, after that, he's in cop mode. He's at work. Uh, and I, I think you're right that it kind of robs the film of uh, some potentially interesting stuff. Um, I want to talk about a line that Dennis Hopper has that I think mm-hmm. is really interesting and plays into this media stuff we were talking about a little bit earlier in, uh, in our review. Uh, he says, interactive TV is the way of the future. And mm. holy shit, this movie had no idea how right it was. <laughs> oh my goodness. This movie done ba- about that. It bandersnatched us. This movie had no idea. Call in to vote for American Idol. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Every once in a while, you'll get a movie from the 90s that uh, there's plenty of films from the 90s that get the future of media totally wrong but every once in a while you get one that is just so on the nose and it has no idea and it's it's really interesting to me that this film I mean I don't, I don't really have a lot uh, with that idea unless you guys have any thoughts yeah but. it doesn't really feel like it's playing with it I think it plays more with the ideas of what media uh, how that controls mm-hmm. situations of this nature you know and, and you know oddly enough this what comes out like a week before OJ yeah. right I mean it's well, too long before that happens um, which is a lot of similarities considering he's driving a Bronco. And just three months after, uh, oh wait, this is 94. Uh, wait, shit, when was the Murrah bombing? 94 or 95? 95. Okay, so never mind. Uh, we're still a year out from the Murrah bombing, but uh, you're right. The, the OJ yeah. is a much better comparison. It happens like, literally a few days later. Yeah, uh, and so I, you know, I think it's more interested in exploring that, and I think that's just kind of a, a fun tag, right? The idea of interactive TV, and it doesn't really play with that, but I, I think in the 90s, you know, where the question does become, you know, where does TV go next mm-hmm. and what do we do with that? And then, you know, we kind of explored that some with Batman Forever and it comes up in the ring. Um, these ideas of what is the future of media yeah. and what does that look like? People see the Internet coming, but not quite sure what the relationship between the Internet and television is going to be. You're yeah. absolutely right. Um, and, and you're I'm glad you mentioned OJ because I was thinking about Oklahoma City just because, well, one, we live here. Two, we're right around the anniversary and as we're recording. And three, this is a film about domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right that O.J. is a better example. I mean, there are plenty of legal pundits uh, and law enforcement pundits who have said, if the media was not following that white Bronco, O.J. gets shot. 
period. Yeah. That's how that story ends. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right that it's, it's super interesting that these events happen concurrently, the release of Speed and the, the, uh, white Bronco. Chase. Well, it was super eerie watching the beginning of this because he jumps in his, what, 67 Bronco or whatever, yeah. and takes down the freeway, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. This is wildly bizarre. Yeah. It's very uncanny to see that knowing that's exactly how the, also, the chase plays out. Great Bronco. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I Great want that car. Him. Yeah, looks good. So I want to move into Dennis Hopper's character and his motivation because he is a terrorist, but he's not motivated by the sort of white separatist motivations of a Timothy McVeigh. This is a man who was... He's a Hans Gruber. He's a Hans Gruber. He's after money for sure, but he is a man who was um, sort of forced into retirement, paid a lousy pension, a lousy disability. And a shitty gold watch. And a, yeah, and, and this cheese ball gold watch. And he feels as though his body has been used up and uh, literally um, used up to such an extent that parts of it are gone now, mm -hmm. and uh, that he's not been compensated appropriately for that. Um, the way in which uh, governmental systems, systems of uh, power and control, um, chew up and churn out bodies. and Even the bodies that are responsible for the maintaining of that power structure, right? right. Yeah. And so, I mean, it does seem to be a bit of a uh, from-below kind of situation where, like, this guy really does deserve a better pension. And they blew off his thumb, mm -hmm. and he served for long enough. You know, he's got to, he's up for retirement, and he has to live. You know, at this sort of level, like that's probably not fair. That's probably not okay. And as I'm thinking about it, it probably makes the film like way too problematic to make uh, Dennis Hopper's character more severely disabled. I mean, that mm -hmm. kind of enters into a yeah. much more problematic yeah. territory. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's probably for the best. It's kind of a superficial wound. I just it, it just rings a little bit silly to me. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right though that it is thematically very interesting his motivation yeah because it is this idea of like well how do you you know properly compensate those who are you know disabled on the job and uh, what responsibility do these massive structures of power have towards those who were once their employees and what it turns out is very little at all and that the pension fund's there but it can go away mm-hmm and you can pay into a pension for a long time, but at no notice, it could be drastically reduced or completely removed entirely. And yeah. that disability benefits themselves are pretty limited. Yeah, it, it definitely says something interesting about the. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, people who are employed at the federal government, whether uh, military military uh, service people or um, just public servants at the federal level, um, have a little bit more of a uh, reliability, right? Whereas you have municipal public servants who are kind of... You know, out on a limb. I mean, look at the people, uh, the public servants of Detroit mm -hmm. uh, who uh, watch their pension go bye-bye. Uh, so you're absolutely right that it does kind of enter into this. Well, we take care of some people who work for the, uh, our systems in this country, but why don't we take care of all of them? But it does do something additionally interesting insofar as it characterizes those who don't just lay down and accept it as, as villains. mad villains. Yeah. And that is, you know, hegemonic at, at its worst. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, again, I don't think the, the film knows it's doing that, but this is why you got to think about your movie, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was my last big observation. Are there any other um, big thematic things that you guys want to discuss? Yeah, I, I had one, and it's uh, it absolutely makes sense, Arthur, that you said uh, I had no idea that Joss Whedon did punch-ups on this movie, uh, which makes sense. I mean, that was basically how he made all of his money before Buffy. Uh, but uh, there's a moment where this film, and doesn't explicitly say this, but there's a line from Firefly, uh, the Joss Whedon television series. Uh, the character Zoe says, hero is just another word for somebody that gets people killed. Mm. Uh, that might actually be from Serenity. I can't remember. Yeah, it's from Serenity. Uh, but it makes sense that Whedon does punch-up on this because that is an idea that gets played out on the bus. Like, no, no, no. There is somebody whose job it is to save this bus. Everybody else on the bus needs to just, like, stand back and be, wait. 
There's literally a person whose job it is, and this is going to be the only time that I tell you that, uh, uh, listener, that you should absolutely listen to the police at all times. Yeah, you know what? If there's somebody with a bomb or a gun, maybe go ahead and listen to the cops. Do what you're told, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the one situation where don't. Your job is not to get shot here. There is somebody whose job it is to get shot. So true story. This last week is, uh, in the time of recording, is uh, the cursed week of all things America. As we alluded to. Yeah, the uh, the Murrah bombing, Columbine, you know, um, some news events took place in which there was a young woman who was wanting to reenact Columbine, perhaps in Colorado, uh, traveling from Miami uh, to do that. And I had a conversation with my sons, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly with my oldest son, who is in a high school. And I said, listen, buddy, this week I need you to keep your eyes open and your ears open. And if you hear something in this order, run and hide. Don't be a hero. Hero is another word for somebody gets other people killed. You know, and just, I mean, that's, that's that, that, you know, that's not bad advice to give. No, that's absolutely not. And I I think the other moment where this film kind of reckons with uh, mortality in life or death situations is when Keanu and um, uh, Sandra Bullock are having this conversation about watching Beth Grant's character die. Mm. And he says, how did you feel? Or he doesn't say, how how did you feel? He says, I know how you felt. You were just glad it wasn't you. And it's really interesting that we get that. And uh, I... It leads me to believe somebody in Hollywood knew somebody, uh, because there's this very famous story about the set of Platoon, uh, where Dale Dye, a very famous Marine Corps veteran who, uh, I think, ooh, I'm going to get in trouble if he was actually in the Army, but I'm pretty sure he was a Marine oh, Corps Oh, yeah, because they are hard Oh, they really it. hate each other. Yeah. Uh, look, it's not, it is important, it's not important to what we're talking about right now. Uh, very famously, though, on the set of Platoon, he asks all these assembled actors, how would you feel? You're in a rice paddy, your buddy gets shot in the face, how do you feel? And they give all these answers. I'm angry. I'm sad. Oh, why am I here? And he goes, no, you're just happy you're not dead, dipshit. Like, mm-hmm. That's the only thing you'll feel. I guarantee it. Uh, and it's, so there's, there's got to have been somebody that had heard that story, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was Graham Yost or Joss Whedon. Somebody heard that story. Because, look, neither of the, the, neither of the people that worked on this screenplay have ever been in the life or death situation. But the fact that that very real, very interesting observation about watching other people die in a in a violent situation made it into the film i think it's really cool and it's just it's not a perspective we get very often on film is the idea that when you are in a life or death situation you really start to have your empathy tested in Mm -hmm. in a very real way and i thought it was just a cool moment in the film it's as i as we mentioned earlier it's just one of those moments where the film gets to breathe and the characters get to have a moment. And I, I, I would say that's maybe the only other moment where Keanu's character, uh, Jack, gets to have a little bit of vulnerability is when he's kind of saying, hey, I know what you're feeling and it's okay to be feeling that. Yeah, which is a moment where it is, again, a lack of empathy that he's emphasizing. That's true, too. you're right. So, you know, it's, it's still kind of closed off. Mm-hmm. So, but alrighty, well, I think we probably ought to render a verdict on speed. So does it go on the shelf or in the trash? What say you, first-time viewer Arthur Gordon? I'm going to shelf this bad boy. I, I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, it's one I could see myself going back to. It's very enjoyable, very quotable, very fun. Uh, I, I think it just works on mostly every cylinder it's firing on, I, uh, despite some flaws towards the back half. But, um, yeah, I, I easily see myself shelving this one as uh, rewatchable and just uh, entertaining and as one of the kind of peak genre pieces of the 90s. All righty, what do you say, Dalton? Shelf or trash? Uh, I'm with Arthur. I think this is not only an interesting film uh, in terms of Keanu's career, uh, but also in terms of 90s action cinema. There's a moment where somebody says, oh, uh, who, who's who's the culprit of this bombing? Is it somebody we bombed? 
Uh, and it's a very uh, cheeky pre-9-11 action movie line, uh, but I think it is kind of endemic of pre-90s films that deal with domestic terrorism, uh, or terrorism in general. Uh, there's kind of a glibness to it because it's just not something we're prepared to think about as a nation. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting just historically in terms of American action films, but again, in, in the arc of Keanu's career, uh, I, I think it's really great. I mean, last week we talked about River's Edge kind of only being interesting as Keanu's first movie outside of you know, some some interesting questions about morality and teens and stuff. but And some aesthetic stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. but we we kind of all came down on, this is not a great film. Mm. I would go ahead and go to Bat for Speed as a great film. Uh, maybe the caveat of great action film might need to be plugged in there. But I think it's really damn good. It succeeds at what it wants to do quite well. I, I And I think it's a great example of taking an idea that on paper just doesn't work. Yeah. And infuses it with life and a narrative thread that really does make it into a compelling idea and what if this is a cheap studio film that was made on 30 million dollars ish budget which even today is only about 50 mil god we don't see any 50 million dollar studio no. movies these days um, and it ended up making over 300 million dollars sometimes all it takes is a good high concept some big ass explosions and some cute stars with good chemistry you can make a good fucking movie there you go thank you very much for that dalton i'm gonna tell you this i think speed is every bit as good as die hard Damn. Every bit as good. I don't know if I would agree Every with you. Every bit as watchable. But that's a fair point. Hey, when the dude comes back at the end, it's just as anticlimactic as a big fight on the subway scene. It's, mm. ju- it's just as errant there. Mm-hmm. Disagree. Uh, Disagree. I, I, yeah. We got Sergeant Powell. Uh, anyway, sorry. I mean, it, I mean, definitely the way it's closed by him drawing his gun is a little bit better than just, but I'm taller, um, which is a dumb but very, very fun line. But, yeah, it, it, I think it absolutely works. Uh, I think it's every bit as good and uh, totally worth your time. So I would definitely put Speed on the shelf. It's been on a VHS recorded off HBO uh, tape on my shelf for a long time. And uh, I would buy it at some point in the future. Is that how you watched it for the show? Uh, I went ahead and read the Amazon because I just wanted to see if it looked a little better. And uh, it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, sometimes you need that uh, that 90s tracking to really uh, set the mood. Yeah, I could have gone ahead and watched the VHS and it would have been just as good. So mm. that is my thoughts there on that. Uh, well, hey, Dalton, why don't you say some things about how they can follow the show? Oh, yeah. Uh, we totally forgot to do that last week. Uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, if you uh, are listening now, uh, thanks. Uh, we uh, are now way, way out from our, our guest-hosted episode over Captain Marvel, uh, but as we are recording, that episode literally just dropped on Friday, uh, and we have had an amazing response to that. So even though we're probably now six weeks out from that having uh, dropped into your podcast feed, we just want to say again, thanks so much to uh, Kirsten, Aaron, and Alex for taking the reins on the show, and thank you so much to, to listeners, uh, both old and new, who enjoyed that episode. Uh, if you were a newish or new period listener, uh, please stay with us. Uh, we're not always going to be as good as Alex, Aaron, and uh, Kirsten, but we're going to try. Um, look, should they be the, the regular hosts of the show? Maybe, but they haven't been getting uh, together on Sundays for eight years, so that's why we're still here. <laughs> uh, but again, thank you so much to them, and thank you to Kirsten for stealing our social media for the week. Uh, if you want to be part of what we're doing over on social media, that's g- at good underscore trash over on Twitter. If you don't want to be on Twitter, I cannot say as I blame you, you can send your long-form feedback to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com, and you can find everything good trash over at goodtrashmedia.com. Uh, that's where uh, all the stuff's happening. The articles, the the podcasts, all the beautiful, beautiful content that both the three of us and also a whole heck of a lot of other people help make for the internet. Uh, did I miss anything? Oh, yeah. Rate, review, subscribe, do that business. And, uh, yeah, that's it. And that's right. Good Trash Media, what we lack for in quality, we make up for in commitment. <laughs> <laughs>
That's true. And if you really did like uh, Aaron, Alex, and uh, Kirsten taking over, I can assure you you'll probably uh, journey with them into the multiverse again this year. We've got some good ideas planned out. They've got some good ideas. and uh, The snapture will happen yet again to the three of us. We'll have to come up with something else, but uh, yeah. Oh, I think they already know what their next episode's going to be. Oh, I know. Uh, but we've got to transition back into the multiverse somehow. Yeah, so. we got to go back over to Earth 617 and uh, see what the, the gals are up to. Uh, I did forget, uh, if you like this uh, dumb show that we make enough to uh, help keep the lights on patreon.com forward slash GTM, uh, if I don't uh, you know, do the money plug, uh, I am obligated to let Arthur and Dustin both punch me uh, after we get done recording. So I had to mention that. Very, very important. And we do have a new... Uh... Patreon. I forgot to shout him out the last couple of weeks, but Griffin uh, is one of our newest patrons. Griffin, Griffin. Well, thanks, bud. And so uh, we're thankful to have him on board. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, head over to Patreon.com/slash/GTM. See some of the cool perks we have. Cool. Dustin, now you have agreed to this full marathon. We have yeah. your name in blood on paper, uh, saying you would write out the man called Keanu. Is that what I called it? That's I what you remember. called. Okay, yeah. cool. The man called Keanu. We found the marathon name uh, after we recorded last yeah. week. Yeah, uh, and so. Uh, next week we're doing one I'm really excited about. Yeah, we're skipping the Matrix, obviously, because we've done that on the show before, and we are now going out of peak Keanu into his post-Matrix powers. What does the man called Keanu do when he's so rich that he basically just gave people money on the set of the Matrix? What does he do after that? He stars in a Philip K. Dick adaptation of a movie about dr- of a book about drugs directed by Richard Linklater, and also it's a cartoon. What? Yeah, that's what's happening. We're watching a scanner darkly. Fun times. So you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.